Welcome to Majority Minority, a podcast about the rising and evolving influence of people of color in Washington, D.C., and what it means for everyone else. I'm Franco Ordonez. I cover the White House for the 30 news outlets that together make up McClatchy. And I'm Bill Douglas, and I cover Congress for McClatchy. We're calling this season one of the show, a casual conversation in six episodes featuring voices from Washington, D.C., from outside the Beltway, from people who impact today's politics. Democrats, Republicans, consultants, activists, we're going to talk to people of all shapes and sizes and obviously colors. All of them share one thing in common. At one point, they were political outsiders, often ostracized, sometimes criticized, and made to feel like they didn't belong. They've been the ones affecting the change and charting this country's future with priorities that reflect not only their family histories, but the changing face of the American electorate. Today, we have Democratic Representative Luis Gutierrez from Chicago. He shared why he got into politics and how his Puerto Rican heritage made it an even more personal pursuit. I thought he was honest about his journey to becoming a Puerto Rican. No, I agree. I think, you know, I think that outsider thing that he talks about, it's actually something that I relate to as, you know, someone who grew up with immigrant parents. Um, He's not an immigrant, obviously, he's Puerto Rican. But I think it's really fascinating how he went to Puerto Rico essentially as an American kid and kind of had to learn what his background was about. Right. Um, I mean, it's a fascinating American story. An outsider who, who went outside and was still an outsider to come back to change things on the inside. And I think that's who he is. Yeah, he's kept that theme throughout his career. You know, he's fascinating because he transcends tribal politics. So his crossing the streams is fascinating. Let's begin. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. Let me just kick it off. Do you mind just telling us a little bit about how you got here, starting with your your parents and your siblings? And mm. who, who were they? And what are their names? So Luis and Adamina came to the United States in 1952 from Puerto Rico. They were 20 and 18. Respect. My mom was 18. My dad was 20. And there wasn't much in Puerto Rico after World War II. So many people have read about Operation Bootstrap. In Puerto Rico in the 1950s, it was the new economic formula, right, for advancement. The problem is it depended on one thing, and that was that you had to move a certain amount of the population out of the country and out of the workforce for it to work. So my dad started working in a restaurant. My mom went straight to work in a factory, uh, soldering for 20 years. My dad, uh, he was quicker to learn English than my mom. I don't remember her speaking to me because our house was bilingual. My parents did speak Spanish because that was the language they spoke. But I spoke to them in English all of the time. So they understood my English, I understood their Spanish, and that was the bilingualism. Siblings? I have a sister, she's a school teacher in Chicago, a year younger. Uh, Like my mom says, you know, that was the way you did it. You had a boy, you had a girl. And she says this, she says, and then we closed down the operation. You mentioned kind of growing up speaking English back to your parents. It's kind Mm -hmm. of like my story and my my family's Colombian. I grew up in one of the very few Latinos in my elementary high school. I always spoke English. My parents wanted me Americanized. Mm -hmm. I mean, were you... One of many, one of few kind of Latinos in your school? I mean, did you feel like a Latino? You know, this is an interesting question. I knew I was Puerto Rican, but I always felt that I was too Puerto Rican to be American. And then when I went to Puerto Rico, I was absolutely too American to be Puerto Rican. So kind of caught in this middle. But 
your ethnicity and your race were very pronounced, as I remember growing up. So, you know, the Polish kids were Polish, the black kids were black, the Puerto Rican kids were Puerto Rican, and there was a very strong identification. There wasn't this thing about, you know, you're American. There's a rite of passage being Puerto Rican in the United States, and it's the following. You get into an argument with somebody, and they hit you over the head with, well, why don't you just go back where you came from? The cheap out. Well, that rite of passage you talk about, how different is it for a Puerto Rican or Latino versus a black person in Chicago or a Polish person in Chicago? What what was different about your rite of passage versus other ethnicities back, or races? Back, I would say that it was interesting Polish kids did not get denied the ability to be my neighbor. I got denied the ability to be their neighbor. The ones that were in power and set the rules was a white community, right? So the white ethnic community. And I bet you all remember 1983, which is what really gets me involved in politics. There was an African-American congressman from Chicago. His name was Harold Washington. He decided he would run for mayor of the city of Chicago against Jane Byrne and Richie Daly, and he beat them. And Dan Rostenkowski, chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, an influential Democrat and uh, a counselor to presidents, right, supported Bernie Epton, the Republican nominee, against his congressional colleague in the Democratic caucus, Harold Washington. And Epton's campaign theme wasn't better schools, safer streets. It was literally before it's too late. For me, I understood what that meant, right? Before they move into your neighborhood, right? Being Latino and having grown up in the city of Chicago with the kind of racial, ethnic tension that we grew up with, I said to myself, 25, 26, I thought, this is outrageous. Chicago may be north of the Mason-Dixon line, and it may be a modern cosmopolitan city that I grew up in, but history will tell you that it's tough. Well, you've always, you always talked about how like that experience that you had as kind of like an outsider has helped give you perspective. So too Puerto Rican to be American in Chicago, absolutely too American to be Puerto Rican in Puerto Rico. I felt, I'm home, right? Everybody's going to celebrate. He's come back home. He's Puerto Rican. I mean, that's what they told me for 15 years. I was Puerto Rican. So I was convinced and conditioned in Chicago that I was Puerto Rican. And I had coming back to a country named Puerto Rico. Uh, it didn't quite work out that way. They looked at me like I was like right out of West Side Story. I probably smoked too much marijuana, was involved in gangs. So I get to Puerto Rico, and I, I remember going to my... um to my homeroom, and he took my card, because it was homeroom, and he said, what's my name? And I thought about it, because, you know, Gutierrez, 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 I could give you other versions of my last name. But anyways, he told me I couldn't, I couldn't matriculate. And he asked me, y tu no tiene madre, and don't you have a mother? He said that just by reading your card? And he looked at the card because I didn't have my mother's last name. And in Puerto Rico and in Latin American countries, your name is your first name, your father is your surname and your mother's last name. And both of those names make who you are. And obviously in the United States, you take your father's last name and that's it, right? I went home and I was crying and I was pretty humiliated. And my mom taught me my name, Luis Vicente Gutierrez Olmedo. And I thought, man, that's a great name. 
And I went back to school the next day. I chose a pretty girl. She was in the corner. And I walked up to her and I said, hola. <laughs> <laughs> Mi nombre es Luis Vicente Gutierrez Olmedo. I mean, I hit all the accents, rolled the R's. She says, the gringo is bothering me. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not a gringo. And then Americanito, gringo. I said, why didn't you tell all those, you know, dudes back in Chicago? I would have caught a lot less flack if you would have convinced them I was a gringo and Americano. So in the end, it was the humanity of, uh, of some of my classmates who reached out to me and said, I'm going to teach you how to speak Spanish. It was a, a very important moment, and I think a lot of my focus on immigration comes from that experience. Let me ask you a question about, about the look. You have lovely hair. What's left of it, I <laughs> um, <laughs> You straightened it in seventh grade. I did, but lots of people did. So <laughs> I'll give everybody the secret. We used to be used Alberto V05 because to me there was still that self-hatred, right? that wanting to have straight hair, that looking at those blue eyes and saying, why can't I switch mine out for them? That happened, right? And it happened to me and to a lot of people. One of the great things about going to Puerto Rico was all the doctors were Puerto Rican, right? All the lawyers, the architect, the engineers. And to me, it was quite a shock because only Puerto Ricans I knew were people who worked in factories or in hotels and waited tables or drove cabs like my mom and my dad. So I didn't have another experience to look at. And people were focused on their education. I don't remember a college-bound kind of mentality in Chicago. In Chicago, what I remember is you graduated, you went to Westinghouse, Helen Curtis, you went to a factory. I mean, how many kids weren't married by the time they were 19, 20? Or go into the military. So Puerto Rico showed me and expanded in my eyes, wow, what all Puerto Ricans could be. When you first came to Congress, you had a little bit of a reputation. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. So when I got to Congress, it was the theme of my campaign is closer to the people than the back rooms of Washington, D.C. It was 1992. And you know what? That's what I campaigned on. I was happy to leave the Chicago City Council. And Bill Clinton gives his first speech to Congress, to a joint session of Congress, his first budget. And if you remember, Bill Clinton wanted to reduce spending and, and tighten the budget up. So the deficit, right? And the debt, he was going after them. In order to do that, he said, everybody's going to have to take a wage cut, right? We're, we're going to reduce salaries for everybody. So I showed up at my office the next day to my young staff, and I said, the way I get this, we're all in this together, everybody's going to have to tighten their belt. I said, so they're going to reduce my salary too? And they said, oh, no, no, Congressman, you're exempt. You're organizationally different in terms of what affects your salary. And I said, well, that didn't seem right to me. So I got together with seven of my colleagues, and we proposed freezing the wages of members of the House of Representatives in line with the spirit of the speech that Bill Clinton had given. Well, that didn't go over very well. One member, I think it was Ford, he was education chairman. I forget what state, maybe Ohio. He saw me on the trolley and he said, don't you ever put your hand in my pocket again. I'm like, okay. I was 
I was too new here to to really gauge all of the the nuances of what was happening. Even though it was eight of us, it was adopted. It's not necessarily a reputation, though, that you've shaken either in your later years. I mean, with Obama, you were one of the first people to call him the deporter-in-chief. You got arrested many times. Barack Obama, in 2007, voted for the fence. Just so we put things in context. Explain the fence. So I had introduced comprehensive immigration reform with then Congressman Flake, now Senator Flake, and Kennedy and McCain in 2004. Anyways, it fails. It, it falls apart. It fails. In September of that year, the rebuttal was, before we go into the election of 2008, we're going to finance a fence. And there's a border patrol fence. And it's only in the Senate. I don't remember voting it in the House on it. It was in the Senate, and it was a big vote, and Dick Durbin votes against it. Kennedy votes against it. Just as it were clear, Barack Obama, the freshman, right, junior senator from Illinois, votes with the Republicans on building a fence. He calls me. It's late at night. Phone says, Barack. I answer it. I say, what's up, brother? What's going on? And he says, well, I got a problem. All these people are really upset at me because I voted for the fence. And I said to him, I didn't know you voted for the fence. Why would you vote for the feds? And he said, well, I wanted to show, I remember he said to me, I wanted to show Republicans, sign a good faith, right? So that in the future, we could work on doing reform. And I said, but we didn't get anything. You got to get a little something. And he says, well, they're all angry. They're, they're writing Juan Andrade's written this nasty piece in the Chicago Sun-Times. He kind of brought me up to date. And I said, well, here's what I would suggest. Why don't we invite the community activists on immigration from around the city of Chicago, and why don't they sit down with you and you explain to them how you did this because this is not going to go away. And he agrees. And I remember he says, and you're going to sit next to me during the whole meeting. (laughs) And I said, and I'll sit next to you during the whole meeting. And he explained to people how he voted, and I sat with them, and a young girl got up. She said, Senator Obama, this is my dad. He's my hero. Yeah, he doesn't have papers. I want you to know that as a child, he carried me in his arms across that river. We could have died. We could have drowned in that river. And now you voted to build a fence so more people can die. Senator didn't have an answer. Nobody had an answer. That was a very compelling argument of a young girl who redefined her dad as someone she loves and her hero, and it risked both of their lives crossing that. And I remember Barack said, we're going to communicate better in the future. How do we get from there to breaking deportation records? Well, I went to see him in, in December before Christmas in his transition period, and I said, immigration reform. And he says, can't do it. We're bleeding hundreds of thousands. Some months we're bleeding a million jobs, Luis. We can't do it. Why don't you come back in April? And I took that as a sign that he wasn't going to keep his promise. And I was right. He wanted to convey to the Republicans and show them how tough he was so they would come to the table, not understanding that they would take, 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 take. Republicans, you want to deport people? Good. But that doesn't mean you're going to convince us that you're for immigration reform or convince us we should join your side. How did that impact your relationship with him? Well, it impacted greatly because I think we were most of the time respectful of one another. I remember one time he called me. I have a picture of it. He called me over. He says, are you always on my ass? And he would always, like, complain to me. And one time in the Hispanic caucus, 
after I got arrested the first time, we had a meeting of the Hispanic caucus. He got up. He says, good to meet with you. We were in the Roosevelt room. Good to meet. He stood up and he said, but first I want to say, Luis Gutierrez, you're unfair. So, you know, it was tough. How is it different under Trump? I mean, if Barack Obama's breaking deportation rigors, is it really going to be that bad under Trump? It is different because what Trump does as president of the United States is he criminalizes and demonizes the community. He says that Mexicans are murderers, rapists, drug dealers. And every time he speaks, he speaks about our community. And Barack Obama didn't speak about our community in those times. He had a policy that was wrong. I mean, I believe in his heart he thought he was doing the right thing. Barack Obama didn't surround himself with Stephen Miller. I mean, this is the right-hand person of Sessions. And between Sessions as Attorney General, Bannon, Miller, I mean, he has put together the who's who of I hate immigrants. So it's very, 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 very different. Today, Latinos walk in this country in fear. It was a different walking under Barack Obama. Plus, with Barack Obama, we challenged him. What's the way forward with Trump? The way forward, I think, number one, citizenship. There are 8 million permanent residents of the United States. They're Mexican nationals, and they're permanent residents, and they should all apply. And I think we need to be surgical about it. If we're going to spend money on citizenship, okay, we'll spend some in California, we'll spend some in New York, we'll spend some in Illinois, But really, we need to spend the bulk of our money in Florida. We need to speak the bulk of our money in Wisconsin. We need to speak the bulk of our money in Michigan. We need to spend the money in New Mexico. We need to spend it in Arizona. If you put together a good naturalization program in Arizona, you can count those in the Electoral College for those who believe in immigration reform. So I think we need to be strategic about where we put. We need a national program. Second, one million Latinos turn 18 every year. And I know your audience is saying, how many of them got papers, Gutierrez? Those are the only ones I'm talking about, right? A million citizens, Latino citizens, like my grandson, he's 14. In four years, what do you think grandpa's going to do? I'm going to say, happy birthday, here's your new Nike sneakers. Let's go register the vote. <laughs> Thank you so much, Thank you. Congressman, for joining us today. Bye, guys. Thank you, Thank you. The cool thing about Gutierrez is he came to Washington not afraid to ruffle feathers. And after 24 years, he's still not afraid to ruffle feathers. No, I mean, he was the first member of Congress, I believe, to call President Barack Obama, you know, deporter in chief. And it's interesting hearing him kind of talk about the justification between that and how Donald Trump has kind of changed kind of the definition of a criminal immigrant and how he surrounded him with certain people who certainly have a different perspective on this controversial issue. Right. But he also seems either energized or hopeful about the fight ahead. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely like trying to figure out what their strategy is. And it, it certainly it's, it's about getting more Latinos who are eligible to be citizens to getting them to actually sign up so they can vote. Thanks again, Representative Gutierrez, for being here, and thank you for listening. Find more of Majority Minority on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and tune in for you Amazon Alexa users. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks to producer Jordan Marie Smith and executive producer Davin Coburn, and you can read lots more about Representative Gutierrez at McClatchyDC.com. And we'll be back soon with more Majority Minority. Majority Minority.